Hey everybody, welcome to the Metrology Today podcast. My name is Ryan Egbert and I'm your host today. And first off, I want to apologize for the time that has been in between these podcasts. It is purely because I am pretty much a one-man show on a lot of this stuff. And I've been extremely busy, especially with our new certification coming out and all those things. But we have a lot of podcasts recorded and we have a lot scheduled. I promise you those are coming. Just please bear with us. It's probably going to be about a year or so until we are regular on a lot of these extra projects. So I appreciate all of you and and the patience that you've had, but also the, the response that we've been getting. We now can say we have thousands of downloads, which I'm very proud of. Now on the show today, we have Sean Bird, who is the technical manager for Tidious Olson Testing Machine Company. Now, beyond being a technical manager, Sean is very active in the metrology and testing industry. He serves on ASTM and ASM as subject matter experts or SMEs. Sean is also a member of the Tinius Olson Market Analysis Group, which has a responsibility for market analysis in relation to Tinius Olson's position in the marketplace. In addition to his membership in ASM, Sean is also a member of the following ASTM international committees, the A01 on steel, stainless steel, and related alloys, D30 on composite materials, the C09 committee on concrete and aggregates, the E28 committee on mechanical testing, and an F16 on fastener. So you can tell Sean is very, very busy. These groups alone have over a thousand members combined and responsible for over 250 standards. And Sean is also involved with Tinius Olson and ASTM working on collaborative uh, projects with colleges and professional industries. Sean provides training on various platforms of mechanical testing to assist clients and students to achieve a level of competence needed for success in always changing society of testing. And this includes both hands-on and classroom instruction. So he fits right in here with us here on Metrology today. So I'm very excited to have him on the show. And it was a pleasure talking to him. And without further delay, here is the podcast with Sean. Sean Bird, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much, Ryan. It's great to be here. Right before the July 4th weekend. Yes. Uh, you know, in, in today's environment, uh, hopefully they're not setting off too many fireworks out on the West Coast where mm-hmm. they've been in the heat bubble. I think you were part of that as well, yes. were you not? I, I'm, I actually have anxiety about that because I've I lived in California through two of those major fires. Like sure. I was evacuated and everything. Ouch. So just how how crazy it is out here and dry, it does worry me. Well, I was listening to a program this morning. Every 4th of July... Uh, there's no less than 2,000 wildfires across the United States that are started. 2,000. Yeah, that's nuts. That's crazy. Well, I know they shut down a lot of the fireworks out here, but, you mm-hmm. know, people don't always follow that. Of course. Well, I definitely want to start off the podcast by introducing you and, and giving you a chance to talk about your career. You know, everyone here is a metro- into metrology and calibration in some way. 
whether they come here through our school and they're brand new to it, you know, keep in mind there are quite a few of our listeners that are brand spanking new to the industry. But we sure. also have some of those, uh, you know, the the managerial and higher level ones. So tell us what it's, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your career and background? Well, uh, we'll give you the, as I said, the Reader's Digest version. I think that's probably the easiest way. Sure. Um, my, my background, um, I'll just start at the, where I'm at now and then work my way um, yeah, perfect. to that point. Um, I am a technical director for Tinius Olson. Um, I'm also a uh, material testing expert um, for ASTM or subject material expert, if you will. And uh, I also am involved in ASM colleges and universities, uh, putting curriculum together uh, for standards compliance and uh, working with other facilities as far as that's concerned, both private and public, along with educational facilities. Um, the way I got started in this was after I finished my first degree while I was in the Navy, I was a diver in the military. I was a Navy diver and I was also on submarines. Um, I uh, had a degree in electrical engineering and truth be told, I, I, it, when I got out of the military, it paid the bills, but it wasn't something I enjoyed. But what I did enjoy while I was in the military is um, I would go through my what we call the preventive maintenance schedule. It's very sure. and I think you're familiar with that. The good old um, PMs. Yes. And <laughs> and there to me, there was some rhyme and reason to it. Now, then I didn't know what I was really doing was traceability. I didn't realize that all the information that I was getting, having a second person check it and then having the officer of the day sign off on it. I didn't realize that was just traceability verification, but in a broad spectrum, that's really what it was. Sure. Um, so you would follow a particular procedure, very similar to what we do today. Um, it doesn't matter if you're in calibration and verification or if you're com uh, trying to comply with a particular standard um, for testing. Uh, that was very similar to what I did then. And I enjoyed that. So when I got out of the military, I went to work as an engineer for a company and it just didn't set with me the way I wanted it to. Mm -hmm. And I decided to go back to school and I got a degree in material science and mechanical engineering as well. Um, I was working for myself for a short period of time and uh, I took a position with a small company out in Portland, Oregon called Coon Hall Adrian, which was a wonderful springboard to the world of testing and really got my eyes opened up into standards compliance. And that was decades ago. <laughs> and, and I'm still here, uh, you know, uh, you know, over three decades forward. And uh, there were a lot of people along the way that helped me along. Um, but I enjoy it. I mean, in, in what other world can you verify that it's okay to break things for a living? Yes, and I, I talk about that all the time. The, the one cool thing about that, or not the one, but, you know, one of the coolest things about that field is you get to break things for a living, you know? That is really cool. Sure, sure. I, I you know, working in different educational uh facilities, uh, not just in the, in the college and universities, but also the educational platforms with ASM and ASTM. That's one of the neat things and one of the more telling things when you're talking to students, it doesn't matter if they're in high school or they're working on their doctorate, 
in today's society, we're all trying to, to get as much information in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And my tangent here is it's not uncommon to be in a classroom, obviously pre-COVID, and everyone's got their face buried in their phone. Right. Right. So the what I like to do is when they're going through the testing portion of it, I like to use the biggest machine that I have capable and break a piece of rebar, which will literally shake the ground. Sure. And then everybody looks up and says, what happened? And I said, well, I told you we were going to break a piece of material. And in the snap or the explosion, essentially, the, the kinetic energy release that happens when two pieces uh, be- were one and they become two pieces is uh, pretty powerful. Wow. And that's, and that's what people don't get or didn't get until they got into these classrooms and, and saw what it is to break things. Because everything that we touch and we do and, and you know, and you and I have had these conversations, it's mm-hmm. all tested. And, and I think a lot of people miss that. But we have to understand that we have to test it and that the test results are, we have confidence in them, right? And that, right. that all goes, and I'm not going to drill down on the, you know, uh, the confidence level and, you know, first and third or fourth or fifth degree of confidence level, but we need to have that certainty, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to have that, that confidence that if we're riding in the plane, that the, the engine was tested properly or the plane uh, wing was tested properly. Right. Same thing holds true if you're going in a skyscraper on a road. And as we look throughout our world right now, with all the things that are happening, um, and it's unfortunate we're seeing seeing that play out every day. Yeah, yeah. I was going to just bring up it's a it's you know one of those things. This topic is right in the forefront with the stuff going on in Miami and all that. You know where buildings go under all the materials for buildings go under a lot of testing, and when buildings themselves get tested or get inspected, I should say, they're you know, there's things that they know about those materials. And I, you know, from what I understand, just from the news, I don't know much else, but they were saying some of that stuff was looking weakened and, and compromised. And we know through all that testing, what happens to those materials when they're compromised or under that kind of stress? Well, what we, what we also know, and this is unfortunate part about it is it's it, the, the testing and the re, the request for uh, restructuring a facility or uh, strengthening the, the platforms, if it's a bridge or the foundation, if it's a building, sometimes people make that as a commercial decision. Mm. And I would challenge people to look at it as a life or death decision. Right. And, and we don't have to look too far back. Um, there's bridges all throughout bridges. the United States that happens. And right. you were saying you lived in California. If you just think about the fiasco that happened with the Bay Bridge construction mm-hmm. and how that was postponed and postponed because it was literally failing um, on their initial testing after the, the first build. And we can just look at history and see that. And we're seeing it today. Our infrastructure um, is crumbling around us. And right. it's important that we, we, we check these things and we fix these things. And we do that through, through testing and, and through the world of of calibration or metrology or metallography or chemistry or mechanical testing, non-destructive testing. There's so many different avenues that is this is tied into. And that's why standards compliance 
is so important, not mm-hmm. just in testing, but also in verification and calibration. Right. Because there has to be a standard way things are done, especially in those industries that you're talking about. Now, I, I did want to, um, just because I'm somewhat unfamiliar, I've done my, my research from knowing you were coming on the show and all that, but how your company, Tinius Olson, so what are some of the things that that you guys do? Uh, I know for, for calibrators, you know, I think of you guys as load cells, but that's just naturally where I go. But then also I know um, from doing research, you know, seeing a lot of the things you guys do with the testing, but also robotics and, you know, there's a lot of things that you guys are working on. Right. And, you know, to be fair, we make a number of different testing platforms, not, mm-hmm. not just things that are tested under force, but we also make melt indexers. Um, we make a number of different pieces of equipment that test impacts. Uh, we have a, a, a machine called a Sharpie impact machine or an IZOD impact machine, which we, you can utilize in, in the metals, the ceramics, in the plastics world. Um, so our, our, our calibration crew um, can go down any of a number of different verifications in the field. Uh, they can do force, they can do displacement, they can do um, speed of the test, um, how, f- how fast wow. or slow the, the, the machine is pulling something apart or crushing it. Uh, there's cyclic testing that we verify. Uh, so th- the spectrum is very, very large. Um, our scope through uh, the umbrella of ILAC and ISO 17025 work, our crediting body happens to be A2LA. And just for those out there who have uh, gone through a number of different audits, uh, if you're a smaller company, it might just be a day. But for our our particular scope in uh, how wide that spectrum is, it's typically a week or more with two to three, sometimes four uh, on-site auditors, which mm. I have the the beauty of hosting at the end of August. I know, isn't that? Oh, that. Oh, really? Yes. So right after the NCSLI conference. That, that is correct. Hmm. Yeah, we, we also do, you know, internally we do a number of different uh, one-dimensional hand tools. Uh, you know, we, and we have a number of different uh, standards that we utilize, you know, from the okay. most simplistic gauge blocks, CMMs, uh, uh, vision systems, et cetera. And so it makes sense, you know, when you look at what you guys do at, at your company, why then you get involved in these things like the ASTM, the ASTM projects. And I think that's like one of the things I wrote down that I did want to talk to you about today is, is ASTM because a lot of the people that, you know, I interact with, you know, the students and whatever we think of ASTM as far as like, um, you know, thermocouples. And some of those other standards that we use it, it, as a as a beginner calibrator, the things that we use, ASTM is one that comes up in a beginning course, you know. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience with ASTM and and kind of the benefits to those standards that, that you're talking about the, and complying with them? I, I can. And, and that's a that's a great question and a great lead in here. So. You know, Tinius Olson's been around since 1880, approximately. Um, and there's been a fairly parallel and symbiotic relationship between Tinius Olson and, and ASTM. Um, ASTM actually started in the uh, 
late 1800s, actually in 1896. Wow. And, and they started in Philadelphia um, and where Tinius Olson started. So they're, 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 they, their relationship has been uh, tried and true for a long period of time. And we're, sure. we're still together. Um, and, and hopefully we'll be together for another 100 plus years. Um, but when you stop and think about what ASTM and how ASTM came to be, it was a bunch of engineers and people who were trying to validate what their material was. And it really based on years and years ago when railroad uh, runners that the trains were running on were made of either good material or not so good material. And the term running off the rails might come to mind for some of those mm. out there listening. Yeah. So some of the engineers took it upon themselves to form a society um, so that no matter if you were in a competing commercial um, position with your neighbors from another state or another city, all the material that was being used, that was being shared with different uh, railroad lines, they were sure that the, the rails were safe. And that wasn't necessarily the case before ASTM. And from that morphed uh, testing of, of many, many different materials and many, many different platforms from, from the actual metals that we, we test today to the super alloys, the nickels and titaniums, to chemistry testing, the chemical testing and the petroleum and the oil and gas industry, to plastics and composites, uh, to uh, different films that we test, um, all the way up to, to, to most recently cannabis testing, um, oh, okay. which, uh, and ASTM has a standard for that. Um, ASTM also has standards for PPE equipment and has always had that. Um, right. one of the beauties to ASTM is they, they, to this day, continue to offer the standards for PPE for free, for gratis to, uh, multinational throughout the world. So oh, if wow, you, that's cool. If you wanted to test your uh, PPE equipment, your mask or you know, your ventilators, et cetera, th- those standards are available free of charge. That's great. Are the people that are uh, mostly involved, like yourself, are they mo- most of the time in manufacturing? No, uh, um, that, that, that's a partial part of the Society of ASTM. Society of ASTM is made up of end users okay. of material producers of material, produces a material um, that they produce the testing equipment to uh, test the raw material, the end product, um, the engineers, the R&D facilities, the educational facilities. So when you go to an ASTM meeting for standards development, inside the, the, the rooms, and more often than not, you, you will have people there that have two or three PhDs along with students that are still in college. Uh, People that are in the Society of Metrology and Calibration, people that are in the industry of raw material manufacturing, like the very large steel mills like U.S. Steel and the AK Steels, um, Alcoa, et cetera. And then the OEM manufacturers of the testing equipment are there and anybody and everybody in between. And it is multinational. We get um, our, our membership is on every single continent. With the exception of Antarctica, but I'm sure some of them have been there. I'm pretty sure I'm a member because I've, I've also, I've done some things on the website and I've also downloaded um, a couple standards that that I've needed. 
it, do you have to be a member to be a part of those committees that come up? What's the best way to get involved if, if someone wants to get involved? Well, I, I would say you don't have to be a member to be invited to attend the meetings. But for the small sum of $75, you get a free standard. And then you can either become a voting member or a contributing member to any particular number of committees or subcommittees. Yeah, see, I think that's what I did. That makes right. sense. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's a very large organization. It's a not-for-profit organization that works with many different societies. Um, and when I, when I say societies, I mean, you know, if I think about what do we test, and, and we, I, I touched on it earlier, you know, petroleum, oils, and then how the petroleum transference, right? The, the actual mm-hmm. vessels that they're, the, the petroleum's held in, you know, the offshore oil rigs, uh, right. the, uh, all the water that we drink, um, all the plastic that holds our containers and our glasses and our headphones, all that is tested. Mm-hmm. And so throughout the year, uh, normally in the ASTM world, there's a meeting every six months. And, and for me, in, in mechanical testing, I'm involved in five different subcommittees. Uh, and I also work in the composites and, and some of the plastics. We meet in May and November, and it's normally for two or three days. And recently, of course, because of COVID, it's been virtually. Um, And that's a nice place to go because the benefits that you asked about previously, Ryan, are Uh when you're in that room, all your commercial hats are off. And you're there for the, the purpose of making sure the society uh, of testing, verification, and traceability in products that everybody has a fair shake of getting repeatable and reproducible results from what they do. And you may be with your biggest competitor sitting in the same room and you may be on a a task force trying to make the standard more concise or -hmm. trying to clear up some discrepancies in the the standard. But when you're there, the hats are off. The, The commercial hats are off completely. In fact, in the bylaws, it's very clear. We do not mention, if you notice, in our standards, any commercial names of a manufacturer of testing equipment or verification equipment, unless it is the only one commercially available. Right. And we do that for a reason. Yeah. These things are for the greater good. They are for the greater good. Everybody's got to put the the competition aside and and think of the greater good. Well, at the end of the day, in, in my world, we don't make anything really other than things that destroy things. Mm hmm. And, you know, when you think about it, the, the world of testing has been around for thousands of years. Right. Um, and uh, thinking about this, I had given a presentation a number of years ago to a university in China, and they were just beside themselves when they saw that some of their ancestors that had created some of the most amazing architectural structures in the world, which are still standing. Mm-hmm. They had testing information, uh, and it was BC. Isn't that incredible? It's it is incredible. Galileo also had his own tension machine. Um, You know, it's as we look back at history, we like to think that we're the uh, inventors of testing, and I think I would like to say that we're probably more of the um, users of testing, and we. 
with technology, it's, you know, it, it makes sense that it's going to become more technologically rounded because mm-hmm. of what's available to us. But at the end of the day, when you pull something apart, you're pulling one single piece to make it two. Right. Yeah. Or and, measure, and measuring the force. Yeah, I know um, in our school, Henry Sumbrun um, from Morehouse talks about some of the testing applications. And I always find it fascinating, especially when I started doing on-site calibrations Mm. and seeing those things, you know, like opening packages or the amount of force to open a lid or something, you know, because those are practical consumer applications. I know some of the things we've already talked about are, you know, uh, like building applications or something like that. You're, you're, you're right, Ryan. When you think about all the applications, what I normally tell people, um, all you have to do is look at your jacket or, or your, your shirt and, you know, your zipper is tested. If you wear glasses, there's a flex test um, and there's fatigue testing. And, you know, there's so many different types of testing that even though I've been doing this for a long period of time, I'm always amazed when I come across, you know, a new test. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we had a podcast where I think it was Jeff Gust from Fluke mentioned mm. that he saw he saw one for the first time where it was uh, a bunch of something thrown at paint to see how much of it will chip or something of that nature. Sure. Yeah, just weird applications. There, but, there uh, are some very strange ones. But taken so for us in this last half hour. Um, I wanted to maybe we take off the work hats as well. We've talked a little bit about where you work now. I, when we were doing our pre-interview, I wrote down one thing that I wanted to talk to you about because it it rang so true with a very big in, industry problem, but also things that we're noticing and we're trying to uh, better in the industry, and that's relationship with the end user. Mm. So you've had a lot of experience obviously in the industry, the testing industry, but also uh, the calibration world. Uh, do you remember us talking about that in the pre-interview? The I do. English? So I, I found that really interesting and valuable. Do you want to, do you want to talk more about that? Well, how, where do you want to drill down on? That's kind of a wide, wide envelope. Well, in that discussion, you know, we were talking about the end users really are getting shortchanged in a lot of ways in the, in the industry right now of calibration because their needs aren't being met. And a lot of the, the, the testing and the, or the calibrations and the, the labs that we're seeing do some of these calibrations are doing it not to what they need and not establishing with that end user, what, what their, you know, the whole requirements in the test that, the, that you're doing for them are. Right. So that's kind of a slippery slope for a lot of different avenues. Uh, in, in standards development, we make it pretty clear that we are not and can't be the, the testing or verification calibration, quote, police. Um, we sure. can't be that, that we, we can't, one, we can't take on that liability. And two, it, it's not within our, our realm to tell you what you can and can't do. What we do is we provide you a very clear and concise platform. And that's just mm-hmm. not in the verification. Anybody that's in our audience, they know what is right if, if they have the training and they mm-hmm. know what is acceptable. 
and they can't be there after the fact. They can't be there after you've calibrated or verified a piece of equipment. And we all know, um, especially us who have some tenure, um, that when we come in to do a verification or a, or a calibration, that typically the end users know whether or not their equipment's good or bad anyways. Yes. Right? Right. And They have a pretty the good the, idea, the status, the current status usually. Right. And... You know, and we, I, I'm not going to get into the as found as lefts because that, that causes a lot of heartache and, and mm-hmm. misunderstanding with a lot of people. But when it comes right down to it, the responsibility of being an ethical and moral uh, verification or calibration company lies on the people doing it. But right. it also, I believe there's a relationship between the person you're providing the service for and the person providing the service. And that is a, that's a trust issue. And if you can impart upon the, the importance of doing things the right way at the front end, it might cost you financially something when you can compare it to what the more catastrophic situations, such as what you see in Miami or mm-hmm. deep, deep water off the coast of Texas or any of the number of bridges. Like there was another bridge that was in uh, ironically, it was in, in Florida as well, where it failed. Um, and they did one test instead of two. And, and the designer clearly called out compliance to a particular ASTM standard, and they didn't follow it. So I would say that specifically also wrapped into this is, of course, COVID. Um, mm-hmm. And how do you adhere to standards when you're supposed to be on an annual cycle and you couldn't get your calibration folks in. Sure. So Which happened I mean, a lot here locally. The, right. There's a lot of tentacles to that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's we're struggling in, in the standards because by the letter of the standard, a lot of the call-outs are to verify a lot of the different testing platforms annually. And if you don't, they're supposed to be red tagged until they are verified. Um, but if you can't commercially get somebody in to verify it, then what I would suggest is you do um, a survey of your equipment and get all your data and then compare that to your, your as, as found data when you get your verification or your calibration done to mm-hmm. see if you're outside your standard deviation. Now, when looking at those standards, like like you mentioned, the ones that they say they cite the standard and they don't do it. Obviously, in commercial applications, there is a a um, you know, there's legalities there. You know, if somebody doesn't do what they say they are going to do, they'll they'll uh, get sued most likely, especially when something bad happens. In the cases where people maybe if they get caught, but nothing catastrophic happens, do they still get in legal issues for not following the ASTM standards correctly? Well, I think this all has to do with accreditation. And so oh, you, okay. So if you're a non-accredited facility, but in good conscience, you, you try to adhere to a verification standard or a calibration standard or a testing standard, but you, you're your own customer. Say you're what we call a captive laboratory, right? Mm. I'm, my English from being over in the UK came out for a minute. Um, <laughs> yeah, if, if you're a captive facility and you're doing it for 
SPC data or you're doing it for a go, no go, and you may be outside the standard compliance. And so we'll just kind of drill down on force for a minute. Okay. Um, if you want to com- comply with ASTM 4 whatever you're testing, your, your testing standard, your apparatus has to be within 1% of, of re- reported value. For mm-hmm. instance, if you're at, if you're at a thousand pounds, you got to be within 1% of a thousand pounds. But maybe internally, your pass-fail may be 5%. And if you're only testing for yourself, you could write your own procedure to say, we're following the basic criteria of ASTM E4, sure. but our internal quality program tells us 5% is okay. And, our, and the standard tells you, as long as you have that in record, and that agreement is agreed upon, either internally or externally, that's Okay. Okay. So what do you, going back to the calibration world, so what, what do young or, or young calibrators or those that are out on, on sites or out in the world using ASTM standards, what are some of the things you got to look out for them? Well, Ryan, so the real caveat to that is, and I'll just give you a quick snapshot, Mm -hmm. as long as you are on site and you were contracted to be on site, what most most calibrators or verifiers have to remember is you're actually on contract. Mm-hmm. You're actually working for that person or that establishment that contracted with your company or you personally to be on site to provide a service. Right. If you have your own procedures and they are accepting of those procedures and they're in compliance with ASTM and they do not meet that criteria, then they fail meaning that doesn't pass. So it might be an as found out of tolerance and you may need to calibrate it or, or adjust it. And at that point, either they're going to be in or out and they might not make it. And they may, it may be to the point where you say, it's about time you look at a new piece of equipment because this 1962 blank tinsel machine is no longer serviceable and no longer meets the criteria that you wish to meet internally. Now that's one portion of it. The other portion of it is, when you're doing your verification, you have a commitment to yourself. If you're accredited, for instance, most calibration companies that are out there, there are some that are not, but most of them have an accreditation. Either they're under mm-hmm. 17025 or they may be under NADCAP or A2LA, or they may have all of those accreditations, sure. depending upon what their umbrella of accreditation is. If that's the case, then they have a responsibility to their own internal procedures in their own internal quality program to report what is as found good condition, as found out of tolerance, as found as left, et cetera. Um, So I would say that the roundabout answer to your question is (laughs) most, most of the answers are not necessarily buried in ASTM. They're giving you the guidance of really two words. Shall, it's mandatory, you have to do it. So if in the standard, it says shall, and for instance, in ASTM E4, shall be plus or minus 1% of target load, there's no gray area. It, it shall be that. Sure. If it says should, that's best practices. So those are really the two words that you should hang your hat on and you shall adhere to. Gotcha. That's my ASTN joke. So there we like go. like it. Oh, it's good. <laughs> Okay, that makes sense. So it really comes, I guess what I'm getting out of that is a lot of the, the liability there comes out of your agreement. 
That that's correct. So, so maybe the, maybe the biggest concern is for those that are customers of calibration. Right. And so it's it's great that you brought that up because that's really been a a shift from ISO 2005, meaning 17025-2005 mm-hmm. to ISO 17025-2017. The risk assessment really relies on not necessarily the calibrators as much, but on the receivers or the folks receiving the calibration. And it's, um, it's called decision rule. Mm -hmm. So if you go to a facility and they're trying to meet a particular criteria and it's not uncommon, it's specifically to all the folks in the calibration world and verification world, it's not uncommon for you to talk to an end user and you may be talking to a purchaser who has no idea why you're on site. They're just there to provide you with a purchase order so that you can get paid. So you will invariably ask, what standards do they wish to meet? Do they wish to meet ASTM or ASME or ISO or JIS or any of the other number of multinational standards that are available? And sometimes they don't know. Most of the time. Right. And so... (laughs) Uh, it's it's their responsibility, and, and 17025 really puts that upon the the receivers of the calibration to take that responsibility. And the beauty of having a standard is it's kind of your fallback. If they don't give you the criteria, you pick you, they you pick the tolerance or the allowable pass or fail that's within your particular standard. And typically, you would use a pass or fail with no uncertainties and I'm not going to get into binary and non-binary decision rule right now, but um, that, that is raising its uh, nefarious head right now throughout the industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, that's a big topic. And that got brought up a lot in our uncertainty, big discussion that we had for three episodes. Well, I don't think you were, I think you're a magnitude away for uncertainties as far as how many episodes you can have. Um, oh, I know. Yeah, it's insane. It, it, it's, it's a, I'm certain it's very uncertain what should be chose. Well, what's your view on it? I mean, <laughs> it, it's just, it seems like such a frustrating issue, but it's hard to find a good answer to how we fix it. Well. It almost seems like it has to be industry specific. Like if you're in dimensional, here's your uncertainty guidance. If you're in this, here's your uncertainty guidance, you know? I think, Ryan, that it's it's difficult to paint the, the answer with the entire single stroke paintbrush. Mm-hmm. Um, my personal opinion is it varies from application to application. Um, there, in, in the standards world, in my personal opinion, when you, and we'll just kind of stay focused on force for right now, mm-hmm. if you're not within 1%, to me, you fail. And I do not want to guard band it with a uncertainty. Sure. And the reason I don't want to do that is because there's material in the world that we test that has a minimum and a maximum. And if your machine is off, and you're right up against the min or max, but you utilize a guard band from your uncertainty, you may be passing something when it failed, or you may be failing something when it should have passed. 
right? Because you're allowing your your load cell or your weighing device, if you will, your force device to have that guard band, which means essentially you're using uncertainty as a tolerance band. And I don't, I personally don't think that's a, a, a the right thing to do. I mean, or the I, intent. I, I don't think that's the intent of uncertainties, you know? It is, in my opinion, that's not the intent of the gum. Um, mm-hmm. The guide of uncertainty measurement is pretty clear. Uh, however, there are other situations where that may come into uh, a, a situation where it may actually be feasible, but uh, you're going to have to persuade me. I'm, I'm much more hard and fast. I, I'd much rather be sure of my my pass or fail without having a a percentage of uncertainty as my tolerance. I just it's just not how I look at metrology in any sense. Sure. Well, how do you feel? Because I I mentioned at the beginning of the show how Tinius Olson has some. I saw robotics and things on there. How do you feel about automation? Is that going to help anything? It or, will. Yeah, your repeatability will be much more succinct. So when you talk about uncertainty, it'll be more triangular than it would be rectangular. So, you know, um, with a human, with human error, that's normally your biggest contributor to uncertainty, right? So if you oh, think yeah. about why people do R&Rs, um, <laughs> uh, they're they do that so that they can figure out what their standard deviation is. And so if you have four different machines, I don't care what they are, and you have four different operators, the chances of getting a tight standard deviation is pretty minimal. Right. It's, it's, it, through training and through repeatability of, of having a really good procedure, you can narrow that down. Mm-hmm. But with automation, it's, and specifically with today's technology, intrinsically, we know that a robot that has a encoder on it is much more succinct than the human hand that's putting something into a device to be measured sure. because it's always in the same spot, repeatable within microns at times. Um, and we just don't have that. We don't have that capability. We're not calibrated or verified sure. to ha- have that that, that type of nuance to get everything right in the same spot every single time. Well, there's no fatigue, you know, there is no no fatigue. And and the other thing is you don't have to tell a robot to measure twice and cut once. Good point. Well, so what do you, do you think, what do you think are places metrologists are going to be in the future in, in the field? Well, I mean, anything and everything that's, operational for testing in for measurement has to be verified, right? We know that. Sure. Yeah. Um, at least in our world. Um, and I would say that as technology moves forward and it, it is screaming forward in a lot of different avenues, that's going to not hinder or take away from the calibration society. I think it's just going to open up different avenues. And we, and we know that because mm. if we look back at, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, when things were starting to go, you know, LCD or, yeah, or yeah. LED or digital or, um, you know, getting dumped into ASCII code into an Excel format or any of those coming off encoders, you know, a lot of people thought they were going to lose their, their data collection jobs. Well, what really happened is, is that those people then became the, the caretakers of these systems. And main, maintaining them and ensuring that they, they got tested and having two or three systems. So if they had to go back and, and put a system in place when they were taking another one off, offline for maintenance, 
because automation, regardless of whether you like it or dislike it, is going to move into technology more and more. And specifically, and I'm glad you brought that up, with COVID, what we're seeing in the world, in, in, the, in the world of testing, we kind of see it before the rest of manufacturing sees it. In the, in the world of testing, automation is taking a bigger step forward than it ever has. We're getting more and more orders as are our competitors and colleagues at MTS and Instron for automated machines. And the reason being is, is that the, the top level decision makers are saying, what if there's another pandemic? Yeah. And what if we have another work stoppage because we can't have people in our facility? Um, you don't have that problem with a robot. You can actually be behind, you know, your, your, your safety equipment and you can go out and check that, but you don't have to have someone manning a testing platform every single moment of the day. Well, it seems like an AI would be very... You know, because they find that AI has been able to diagnose things somewhat better than doctors on x-rays and things like that. NDT applications and testing applications seem like a pretty strong one for AI. It, it is. Uh, I, I think, and it's introduced already, we, we do have some AI in some of our platforms, um, fairly rudimentary. And the reason that we can't include it in, in testing acceptance is because it's not in the standards. Sure. So if it's not addressed in the standards, how do you comply or not comply with it? Mm-hmm. And if, uh, for instance, uh, just a, a point, if you think about how we measure load, right? Um, what we used to use was a balance, right? You, you put something on one side with a known weight and then uh, you, you use a number of different weights on the other side. We know that to be a, a, a true weight of whatever we're trying to weigh because we have known standards we're weighing. Mm-hmm. With AI, there is no way to validate it yet because how yeah. do you validate something that's dynamic? Like a, a, a thought process, basically. You're right. saying an AI thought process on how to diagnose something. How do you standardize that? Right. And how, how, how do you check something that's always changing? Mm. Okay. Refinement is, is important, but if, if you have an AI driven system, how do you know that you're, you're reading a repeatable result? I know that that might be kind of out of the spectrum, but that that's how I think as far as traceability if, oh, no, it's you, interesting. I, I didn't think of it that from that angle, but yeah, that is, that is a good point. Right. And, and I, I think that we'll get there um, just because technology seems to scream much faster than the standards do. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a point, if you really think about that, uh, a lot of the standards that we have that we use um, both in calibration and testing, primarily they really haven't changed in decades. And the reason being is you, you get a room full of a bunch of educated people that are trying to impress you with their, their education about what they think is right or wrong. He or she may, you know, stand fast. And, and the beauty of ASTM is it has to be unanimous. So, okay. and, and that's why the spectrum of the society is so vast from, you know, students all the way to folks that have doctorates that run multi-billion dollar companies all the way to the folks that work in the test labs. And they have to all agree 
to a change or a modification to the standard. And it, and it has to be unanimous. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's, I didn't know the inner workings of some of those. I'm, I'm on a couple of the NCSLI committees and getting, getting familiar with those, but I've, I've never had an opportunity to be on any of the, you know, any of those, you know, ASDM or anything like that. Well, I'll just, I won't say what, with, with uh, the fear of having one of my colleagues pick up the phone and call me after this, after this gets broadcast we had one particular society where we debated a particular inclusion into the, into the standard. And it was one word or one phrase that we argued about over three years. Whoa, that's, that's, that's pretty intense. Do you, do you constantly have new board members coming in as well over that three years? The committee members. Or committee. There, there's, yeah. there, there's, 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 there's tenure in the, in the committees. However, it, it, it's fairly dynamic. It's, uh, you have people that have been going there for literally decades. Um, and luckily, um, one of my major pushes is to get more younger uh, society members into, into the decision-making because they're on the forefront. It's, it's the folks that are in their teens and 20s and 30s that are on the cutting edge of technology. It's not that mm-hmm. the folks that are more distinguished in age, such as myself, don't appreciate technology, but sometimes it's, it's the old adage, well, that's not the way we used to do it. Yeah. And we need to break that cycle because with, with technology comes, uh, I, I think sophistication and, and progress in, in, in a better widget, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think a lot of people that listen, cause I hear from them live a day-to-day in labs that go by that old adage of that's how we always done it. Why change? Why? Hey, here's your on-site paperwork for the month. Here's a whole Bible's worth of paper. Like, why are we not digitizing this? Or, you know, just wasted time. A lot of people wasting time out there. Well, and trees. And trees. Yeah. Let's not forget about that either. (laughs) And, And their carbon footprint is changing. I mean, there's so many different avenues we, we could discuss. I, I mean, I, I, when you get a chance, and as we move forward uh, with this um, relationship between ourselves and, and, and the rest of the world of metrology and calibration, mm-hmm. if you were to come out to our facility north of Philadelphia, you would be shocked, but not surprised, that we have documentation from our machines from the early 1900s, all I in paper it. format. I believe it. I, I came out uh, when I visited Henry when, and I did that uh, that tour and everything. I saw some of the oldest documentation I've ever seen. You guys will have to ha- let me come out and film at uh, Tinius Olson. Absolutely. We would love to have you. It's, Do you guys actually manufacture it here or is it brought in? No. Um, all, the answer is yes and no. Um, our all, all our hydraulic machines and our, our tension machines that are um, hydraulic based are built here in the United States. It's all cool. sourced here. It's all built here, um, which is another handcuff that we're facing with the supply chain fiascos yes. throughout the world. It, this has been a, that I've, I've watched so many different documentaries on all of that that's happened and it's just all just poor timing at the, everything happening at the same time. That, that's right. So our, our facility is actually an old gyrocopter facility. And we've been here at this particular facility since 1948. 
That's so um, cool. And uh, it's a very large facility, um, and the the machines uh, are all built and manufactured and assembled and tested and, and verified here on site. We have another facility uh, just outside of London that does our electromechanical machines, and those are all manufactured there in, in the in the UK. Um, and then we have a facility in India uh, that works with our civil engineering line, and, mm. uh, and that's mostly the concrete and the asphalts sure. and and most of the infrastructure uh, hardware, uh, and that's that's manufactured there. Um, and then we have another facility in in uh, Shanghai, China, um, and that is just a showroom, and that's our 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 fingers, if you will, into Asia. And specifically sure. in, into China. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. We'll have to, maybe we can work out something for 2022. Yeah, sure. Out there. Sure. Well, so we're, we're down to our, our last, you know, five or eight minutes. I always throw out a, a fun one at the end. Uh, and we can, we can put this into testing as well, not just calibration. So what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen calibrated or tested? Like what is the weirdest or oddest or most interesting thing that you've ever seen? Um, well, I can talk about it now. <laughs> nice. Um, we did testing on, uh, um, in a unique platform, we did testing on uh, cadaver bones um, in various uh, stages of decomposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, uh, yeah, that was unique. That is unique. I, I, I don't know if you heard mine, mine, I, I did do temperature measurements in a morgue, right. the bodies. So that's very similar to mine. Right. Right. That, that, that was one of the more, more unusual ones. We, you know, What's the um, application. So like, um, if they're searching through dirt to know like the, the, the composition strength or they, they were looking at, uh, the the capability of the bone not to break down through different oh. you know different stages of decomposition and so to prove that you do compressive strength against the the the, the bone itself gotcha so they yeah, can because bones they, last a long time yes they do and we we found that out yeah because when I, I mean I, I you might not know this when does it go from bone to to fossil you know does that, is I, that a, I, I think there's a number of different, well, I don't think I know because I didn't know, but I was educated by some folks. Um, uh, it, there's so many different uh, contributors to that. It can vary. It, it, there's such a wide spectrum depending upon the, the heat and where, where, how deep the bone is buried underneath the earth. Um, there can be so many different contributors to that. That's insane. Yes, well, it, there, it's, it's a bit that's, crazy. That's a perfect one. I, I really like for these guys to hear all the different applications. And, you know, we always say in the school and through all our platforms that calibration and metrology is one of those weird fields that you can really almost get into anything. That's right. I mean, you think about hair, like when there's another one, we, our machines test human hair. Okay. And we test the human hair for tensile strength because when people are making, there's actual wigs out there that use real oh. human hair they have to be able to decide whether or not the hair is strong enough or not strong enough to build into a wig. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, Henry always brings up the fishing line. That's always yep. a fun one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
but yeah, in, in almost any industry, it's yeah. crazy. syringes. We we tested uh, on the, how hard it is to push them in. Right, the, and it's the the delivery pressure that it takes to inject um, the vaccines. We 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 make machines specifically just for syringe testing. Do you guys make any of the 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 weirdest one I never saw till I was in the civilian community was the bot the ones that test the bottle caps because I work you know Utah in the Salt Lake Valley we do there's a lot of pharmaceutical and supplementation you know manufacturing sure. and all that sure there's a number of different tests that those uh, that those pill bottles go under one is um, how much strength it takes to take the top off you know for the childproof mm-hmm. right. or, or um, how much strength it doesn't take. So for push in, right. And then mm-hmm. they have burst tests. Um, so that when you press on them, you, you really have to press on them hard for them to shatter. Um, uh, then they have volume tests where they fill them up with water to see how long and how much force of water it takes to basically have them explode. Okay. Yeah. It yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And they do that with cans too. Oh yeah. Well, and and I know they test the to open a the can tab. helmet. Yep. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fascinating because, and it makes sense, but really, not, like that's one of those that I really want to focus on during our our series of documentation of things, just because that you know I always talk about how calibration people describe it as gas pumps and scales. You know, at dinner parties. You know, I work on. You know, when you have to explain calibration. Hmm. There's only certain applications that people realize the effects, you know, and the how important it is. But things like this, like I would love to focus on that. And and same with aircraft, you know, people just fly in aircraft thinking, not, you know, not thinking about the precision instruments on there. Sure. I mean, if you think about it, you were asking about some of the weirder tests. One of the other ones is how do they test the skins that go on the airplane wings? I think you and I chatted about that once before. And if sure. we didn't. They they pre they pre stress the skin. It's very thin material, very thin steel, right? Mm-hmm. And so if they don't pre stress it, take you know stress relief it, if if you will, as you go through the air at five or six hundred miles an hour, that that skin on that airplane wing would just peel back like like a sunburn. Mm. So they they pre stress it or stress relieve it, and they do that by bouncing BBs off of it. Essentially, oh, okay. it's almost like being in a glass beating. Um, and they do it in huge, huge facilities where the entire skin is laid out and they put it into a giant glass beater, if you will. Interesting. Wow. See, yeah. These are things I want. I want to film and so people could see it. Yeah. It's just it's some of these things that are so interesting, you know, and and it, it just uh, going like to Morehouse and seeing that, you know, the huge stack of weights, you know, right. things like that you just don't see everywhere. Right. Well, I mean, we don't realize how many things are tested. You know, the seat you're sitting in, the screens we're looking at, um, the the steering wheel we put our hands on, the pedals that we touch, you know, the, the buttons on our shirt sometimes are stress tested after a good Thanksgiving meal. Um, you know, there's so many things yeah. we don't think about. Um, and the Ziplocs that we use, how, how much pressure it takes to collapse them and hold them. And are they airtight? Are they not? All these things are tested. And that's important. And that makes our world a safer place. Yeah. It's so cool. Well, it's a good thing that there's companies like yours that are are focusing on those things. Well, thanks, Ryan. I appreciate that. And and the standards, you know, those, it, like I said, it's, it's something we teach very early because sadly enough, 
I wasn't taught a lot about those things. I had to come out of the military because the military, we teach what we need for the military. Right. You know, that's it. There's no, none of this extra fluff information off to the side. Right. You, know, you, will, you will go from step A to step B. You do yeah. not need to know what's at step C. Exactly. Or right. the overarching pr- programs that create all this stuff. You know, you think you're the center of the world in calibration in the military. Like we are calibration. We but can, then you we get can out stop there. everything. Yeah. <laughs> but then you get out of there and you're like, oh, wow, we were doing just a fraction, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think sure. I think it would be fun to have you back on at some point to talk more about the testing career path because a lot of people, you know, that's one of the branches, you know, you get into metrology calibration. You can also if you know a lot of people get interested into those side industries. So that right. might be something that people would be interested in. Right. And it's not uncommon in in at least from our perspective, it's not uncommon for us to see folks going into the testing platform or the testing society from metrology, from calibration in the other way around people that were in testing that decide to go into the calibration world. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that sure. might be some people that we at least get them interested into some yeah. of the metrology stuff because well, we're just hurting, that's great hurting stuff. for technicians out there. Yeah, that's do, for sure. Do you, do you guys fill it up at your level as well? We do. We do. We, um, we thankfully are extremely busy right now. Uh, we thankfully didn't have to lay anybody off. Um, there, you always have to test things. That's no mm-hmm. matter what's going on in the world. Uh, right now we're, we are scrambling. We have a bunch of applicants and we're, we're adding more people as we go. Awesome. Well, that's good to hear. We, we, unfortunately at the school, you know, we heard quite a bit over the last year, the, the ones that, you know, had to go down the furlough and then lay off path. So I'm glad to hear you guys made it through. Yes. Thank you very much. Well, Sean, that was a, that's everything was great. Uh, I thank you so much again for coming on the show. And I really hope that down the road, we get to talk again. Me too, Ryan. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for having me on, on, on your show. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Hey, thank you once again, everyone for listening. If you have any questions, comments, you have suggestions for the show, or you want to be a guest on the show, reach out to us anytime at information at signcalibration.com. Thanks again.